So many of us came of age with 9-11. We tell our stories around this time, and I'll only tell mine to remind you that none of them are unique. I was in seventh grade. They told me at school. My cousin Timmy worked there, and he almost died, and he didn't. And we're grateful, and he doesn't like to talk about it. My sister moved to New York a month later, and when we dropped her off, there were missing posters everywhere. For people. Real people. And I thought, why are we leaving her here? How could this be a place where someone could be happy? Ground Zero became the backdrop of my early 20s. I weaved in and out of Lower Manhattan for different jobs. I was a generation too young to have been there in 2001, but I found 9-11 in the corners, in little ways. One day there was a small earthquake, and our building swayed, slightly. And I watched my older colleagues bolt down the stairs and not return. Their trauma was just beneath the skin. September 11th, 20 years ago today. People my age hold our memories of this day in vivid snapshots, but they're the memories of children. Those older feel no time has passed, and young adults have no memory of it at all. This is FT Weekend, the podcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Today, we'll use a few FT Weekend stories to talk about the passing of time and what events make generations start and end and how spaces can change, slowly and then all at once. We start in New York. It's worth going back to the original Twin Towers and the sense that as grand as they were, they really were not tremendously well-liked. This is Josh Chaffin, our New York correspondent. He's reminiscing here about when he moved to downtown Manhattan in the late 90s. The Trade Center was like a giant obstacle in the middle of downtown, and then it would be completely empty after work hours. It would just empty out, and that neighborhood was like a kind of tumbleweed neighborhood. New Yorkers may not have loved it, but a real estate developer named Larry Silverstein had his eye on the World Trade Center. It was his dream to own it. He bought it, Twin Towers and all, for over $3 billion in July of 2001. That's six weeks before 9-11. Josh wrote a profile of Silverstein just recently, and I've put it in the show notes. Silverstein was not a beloved figure by any stretch. After September 11th, there was a strong belief that he was not the guy to really be at the center of the rebuilding and redevelopment of that site. Many of the people who died, uh, remains were never recovered. And so the families felt deeply that nothing should be done to that land and to that site. On top of that, the people at the Port Authority, which had sold the, the site to Silverstein, they you know viewed him as kind of an interloper. The World Trade Center was their crown jewel, and he had bought it just six weeks earlier. So he, he sort of barely knew the thing. Josh met Silverstein in his office at Seven World Trade Center. He's 90 years old now, and Josh says he was wearing a beautiful suit, matching tie, shirt cuffs, and cufflinks. His voice, he said, was fading, but his mind was sharp. Silverstein told him this story. It was 7 a.m., two days after the towers fell, and the then New York governor, George Pataki, called him at home. And said, what do you think we should do? And I said, there's not a question in my mind. We should rebuild the trade center. Pataki said, why? 
And Silverstein responded that the World Trade Center was the locomotive that drove all the business activity downtown. He said, you've got to put the buildings back. You've got to put the activity back. It will only happen if we rebuild it. Seven World Trade Center, where Josh and Silverstein sat, had also fallen in the attacks. But because Silverstein owned it, he was able to rebuild it very quickly. And then went out against everybody's expectations and managed to lease the thing for top dollar. And so his performance with that building really began to kind of change minds. So actually, Josh, one of my memories of that area is that I was an intern like around 2009 at a magazine in Seven World Trade Center. Oh, wow. Okay. And I remember there were floor to ceiling windows and I was looking down from the 22nd floor into these holes and it was kind of chilling. And, you know, there were a few cranes in them, but nothing was really moving. And this was eight years after the towers had fallen. So can you tell me about that period where so much of the area felt really stuck? Yeah, absolutely. It was locked, as you say, uh, for many years because of disagreements about what to do with it. And he recalls it as a brutal, agonizing period. Those days were horrendous days. The pressures, the problems, the difficulties, the feuding. The space has changed over time. As Silverstein sat in litigation with 22 insurers for five years, people started to visit the site. And that changed what the area was for. Downtown Manhattan became almost a shrine. As a resident, I just never wanted to see it or even look at it. I thought it was almost inappropriate. But I just remember tourists would flock down there. It was like uh, you would kind of see people and they would kind of disrespectfully, I, I thought, kind of say, where's Ground Zero? How do I get there? It became a thing that people wanted to see. Like a, It became a neighborhood in the city that was, I think, considered pretty soulless by most people, suddenly had this unexpected kind of soul you know, for very tragic and horrible reasons. Silverstein could have taken his insurance money and left, but instead he stayed. And now Ground Zero is something very new, before 9-11, downtown Manhattan had 15,000 residents. Now it has more than 65,000. It certainly developed that area, though it's trying to do a lot at once now. When you emerge from the subway into the Oculus, its transport hub, which is spectacular, there are these huge white fingers reaching up into the sky. From there, it's easy to get lost in this maze of airport-like escalators and malls and chain stores and office buildings. It feels sort of like you're not in New York. But when you get outside of that, there are these two peaceful reflecting pool monuments where the original building stood and a 9-11 museum. Josh, your story reminded us that this is a mass grave. And you told the stories in your piece of widows like begging Silverstein not to build on the site because of that. And I feel like it's like a nearly impossible task to remember and honor and also rebuild in this way that everyone feels good about, especially when there are so many hands in it and their desires are all kind of in conflict. That space and its role has changed a lot. And it's interesting to think of that in light of the way it looks now. Yeah. And now I think this is a common thing with developments, the developers need 
or they want certainly the retail and the office space. And they want to maximize that in the designs to essentially pay for the thing. And so I think there's always a question about how well you can fit giant office space crammed next to retail, crammed next to memorial for thousands of people. And there's also the 9-11 museum as well. And of course, now you've got screwing it all up is the pandemic, which is, again, making New York a a ghost town in certain ways. Yeah. And asking about sort of the question of how many people are returning to these big, new, beautiful office buildings. Exactly. Exactly. My last question is kind of how you're thinking about all of this 20 years after 9-11, like especially after these events in Afghanistan. You know, for some people, it feels like so much time has passed. And for some people, it feels like it's been a blank Um, How are you thinking about it? I think the pandemic, in some ways, it feels like it hasn't displaced 9-11, but it is the next big tragedy to afflict the city and cause people to question the future of the city. Mm -hmm. So it it feels in some ways like it felt to me like the 9-11 era was sort of ending because now we're in the, the COVID era. I was struck by the fact when Andrew Cuomo was at the height of his fame and doing his regular briefings on COVID, he would talk about fatalities in kind of increments of 9-11. Mm-hmm. So 9-11 had become sort of a reference point for the current tragedy. Yeah, We're experiencing this many 9-11s, you know, a week or what have you. And of course, there's going to be a whole new generation of people who were never here during 9-11, but were here during COVID. You know, this will be their reference point and the same existential questions about the future of the city. and But I think also the Afghanistan withdrawal, this calamitous withdrawal unfolded just on the eve of this anniversary. And I think it's it, it feels to me like this kind of poignant, very sad and depressing end of an era. It's evening in Kabul, early August, and John Boone is late for dinner. When he gets there, the other guests have already arrived. Everyone's getting ready to eat. We had kind of dished out the uh, classic Afghan fare of kind of kebabs and rice and salad and naan. John Boone was the Afghanistan correspondent at the FT from 2007 to 2012. A month ago, the FT sent him back to Kabul to write a story about the new Afghanistan, this generation of young Afghans who grew up without the memory of 9-11, or Taliban rule. When John went, people in Kabul were still in good spirits. American troops were pulling out, but cities had yet to fall to the Taliban. That night, he was invited to this dinner by an old friend who had worked at the presidential palace. And he brought these three female professional women who are also social media activists mm-hmm. who thought it was part of their uh, their kind of mission to push back against Taliban narratives online on social media. The conversation at dinner was energetic and somewhat hopeful. But in seconds, that all changed. And this huge explosion happened just down the street. I've heard explosions before in Kabul over the years, but this was by far the the largest. This was the closest I'd ever kind of been to one. 
and the windows kind of rattled and uh, I thought they might give in but they didn't they were kind of coated with a blast resistant plastic so they didn't cave in mm-hmm. I dived onto the under the table uh, kind of rather ridiculously and when I emerged everyone was totally shocked and unsure what to do they could still hear gunshots and explosions in the distance. Do you continue trying to pick away at your chicken kebab or do you light cigarettes and chain smoke, which is what they did do? And they found out that a car bomb had gone off at the other end of the street. It was targeting a house owned by Afghanistan's Minister of Defense. The conversation at dinner had been moderately optimistic. This, you know, th- These ladies were arguing... You know, yes, the Taliban have guns, but but we've got our education and our values and, and we're going to take them on on, on social media. Mm. That sense of bravado was undermined by this, this massive explosion. John wrote a magazine cover story about this time, right before the country fell. He intended to write about what was possible in Afghanistan, but instead it became a piece about what was lost. John went to Afghanistan in 2007, and things were changing quickly through his time there. This was a country that had seen all sorts of tragedies, but there were hints for a promising future. So tell me about when you first arrived in Afghanistan back in 2007. Like, what was it like? What were your first impressions? The place was literally being built around me or being patched up around me uh, in the arrivals hall, collecting baggage. The, The carousel kept shutting down because of power cuts there were men on ladders patching the air literally patching the airport up and painting the ceiling you know everything was exciting about being in Kabul being in Afghanistan just going to the shops was uh you know all all the the day-to-day duties of of life were kind of thrilling um and I think that's a mixture of landscape people and the extraordinary history of the place this was you know a country that had this this terrible tragic history and was was trying to remake itself when john arrived there had been quite a lot of development in the six years since 9-11 but there was still a lot to do gutters were filled with trash the electricity was intermittent but he and the expats he lived with felt like they were part of something it was a place that really attracted um all sorts of peculiar people whether they were in whether they were diplomats or intelligence officers or journalists or just people who just like to hang around in war zones. So it was, uh, it, it's a, it was a very kind of alluring atmosphere. And Afghanistan is a country that a lot of foreigners fall quite heavily for. Everyone I know has sort of fallen in love with the place to one degree or the other, and, and me included. John was in Kabul for five years and then returned to London. When he visited this time to write his new Afghanistan piece, things had changed significantly. All of those foreign diplomats, the soldiers, everyone involved in the nation-building exercise and the adventure, they'd gone. Even to the extent of my flight in from Istanbul, back in the day, it would have been full of um, burly contractors in sort of tactical <laughs> semi-combat gear. They'd all gone and it was all, it was all sort of Afghan middle-class families flying in and out. So that was the plan, was to tell a story from an entirely Afghan perspective about how things have changed. When I arrived, the mood was, I, I was quite surprised, fairly optimistic. John also found Kabul different. 
There were young women wearing tunics over jeans. Their hair was in loose headscarves. They were walking alone. The shalwar kameez, the long-shirted uniform that Afghan men wore, they were less prominent. The city was in many ways more Western. They've grown up in a country where they just take for granted a vibrant free media that can sort of say what it wants. A whole new economy of a kind of a leisure economy where there are now cafes and restaurants where they can go and hang out. There are, there's even a, a bowling alley. There's a lot of swimming pools that have been built. Um, there's uh, a steakhouse. He talked to a lot of young people with new metropolitan attitudes, including a yoga teacher who said that if the Taliban came to power, she'd just move her business online. So when John left, despite the bomb at the dinner that night, he felt hopeful. I had to go and uh, sit in a third country before for 10 days before coming back to the UK. The first day of my 10-day quarantine, the first city fell, the, the, city, the city of Zaranj. Uh, and I remember telling myself, that's pretty bad, but probably doesn't matter because it's a small, out-of-the-way place right next to the Iranian border. But then over the course of those 10 days, city after city fell. And by the last day of my quarantine, Kabul fell. Mm. Um, and so it was... It was a complete surprise to me and a complete surprise to, to everyone who I'd been meeting. There were points as John and I talked where he would have to stop and take a second, often asking to start over. His feelings were acute. They were clearly just below the surface. So what makes you emotional? I mean, I know all of it, but, but kind of what triggers that for you? The, I think the speed has, I mean, that, I think there's just a, a heavy, that there's a, big chunk of this is just kind of shock yeah it's it this thing happening so fast but then obviously just uh you know all all the uh the friends the 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 memories of those those times the emotions i suppose are particularly raw because i was just there right at the end of this process and saw some of these these people and it just goes without saying that my my feelings are trivial and irrelevant compared to um, what Afghans are going through. Most of the people John talked to last month are trying now to get out of Kabul. Even the yoga teacher. Sad to say she's, she's, she's still in Kabul, but she's trying to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, indeed, many of the people that are interviewed in that piece have left. There have been some early displays of incredibly courageous and brave defiance by Afghans who have uh, provocatively waved the the national flag and women protesting on the on the streets of Kabul um but whether that can be sustained and these are fairly small protests at, at this stage and ultimately yes these these people may have education and skills and 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 they're used to a certain way of doing things but the other side has has guns and a yeah absolute willingness to to use violence. And I imagine, I mean, it feels like so many people were working on something or working towards something and and that it it it's it feels like that promise is is gone. Um does it does it feel like it's totally gone? I suppose it's a good thing that this happened very fast and there wasn't a grinding civil war in which mm. hundreds of thousands of people die. And there wasn't huge destruction of, of cities and infrastructure. There are 
you know, all these people, the products of the the 9-11 generation mm-hmm. who have expectations, you know, the Taliban are going to have to navigate that. But but I feel that's really kind of clutching at straws. I mean, it, yeah. it falls a long way short of what people had hoped for. I think that's the most heartbreaking thing is that these people assumed that what they had was was permanent. They had no idea that it was all about to end in a kind of instant. If this was a vacation, we would have loved this place and we wouldn't want to go back home. <laughs> but because it's it's we're not on a vacation, so everybody still misses home. Salma Alakazai is a 31-year-old Afghan woman. She's at a beach resort in Shengjin, Albania, outside the capital of Tirana. The U.S. evacuated her and her extended family and hundreds of other Afghans. They're all waiting here for their paperwork to go through. Suddenly, refugees. The Wi-Fi connection is best by the pool, so Salma and her family sit alongside sunbathing tourists glued to their phones, reading the news. We are worried about home, and uh, we just wish we either could take all the people out of there and bring them, put, put them here or somewhere safe, or help things get better uh, back there for them. A month ago, Alakazai would not have believed she would soon be scrambling through the Kabul airport to flee her country. She made it onto a plane. It's like you, you leave your soul and... And, and you just, you, you, you leave everything behind and, and you leave your soul, your heart, and it's just your body uh, that's being, you know, that's moving um, and that's going and, and trying, to, 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 trying to, to move forward. Um, um, but everything is left behind. Um, my identity Um, yeah, it's, it's not easy to, to, to leave your home. Alakozai left a lot behind. She was a woman raised in what my colleague John was calling the new Afghanistan. She studied at the American University there and got a Fulbright, which brought her to the U.S. for a master's. She most recently worked as director general for macro fiscal policy in Kabul with the IMF and the World Bank. What I was proud of the most was because in all these positions that I worked, uh, in, in, in at least two of them, I was the first female working in these positions. My recent one was a highly technical position. We're women in technical positions who were doing technical work. And we had big dreams for, 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 uh, for, for the departments we were working at, for the teams that we were working with, um, which, of course, I mean, nothing is going to happen right now, for, for, you know. Um, after what happened uh, last few weeks. Alakozai is thankful that she and her family made it here. She's thankful that they are somewhere with friendly locals, somewhere that's safe. But they're not tourists. And she's preoccupied with the tragedy unfolding back home. What is next? How do we save the lives of millions of other women who are stuck there, of millions of other human beings who are stuck there? of millions of kids who are going to be raised under this kind of a regime. 
how are we going to make sure that we, we save their lives somehow? This week, sitting by this pool, she watched videos of women demonstrating across her country. I'm really proud of them, but at the same time, I'm really worried for them because uh, uh, we know what the Taliban can do. It's like being in the front line of a war, and they have to do it. This is no more the Afghanistan of the 90s. Um, they cannot silence women. You know, women worked hard. We, all of us, uh, they went through a lot. We, we paid a big prices for, 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 the, for what we have achieved so far. And um, these women, they have, they have seen the world. They have experienced real life. And you can't silence them because they will always find a way to tell the world what they are going through. She's determined to help to continue working for Afghanistan, to share her recent experiences from the ground, even if it now has to be from afar. I, I want to, to be part of this effort to change the narrative and to be a voice. I will also want to be part of the effort to make sure that women back at home, whoever is in need of immediate help and, and evacuation, any way you know, I can provide support, I'll, I'll do that. Thank you for listening to our second episode of FT Weekend, the podcast. Please subscribe and tell your friends. We'll be back here every Saturday to bring you more of the best of our life and arts journalism. We'd love to hear what you think of the show and who you'd like to hear. Email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Lila Raff. Next week, we'll hear from the FT's undercover economist, Tim Harford, on how to let go of our to-do list. I'll also talk to the award-winning novelist, Elif Shafak, about belonging, identity, and her newest book, The Island of Missing Trees. And our columnist, Inuma Okoro, will explore with us how our relationship with the cities we live in has changed. You can always read the stories we mentioned in our episodes through the links in our show notes. You can also find a special offer for an FT Weekend subscription there and at ft.com slash weekendpodcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. George Drake Jr. is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. And Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley is our executive producer. We've had special help from Josh Gabbert-Doyen and from Alice Fordham, who visited Shenzhen, Albania. And we had editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. We'll find each other again next week.